Um, If you have a device, we use the ESV version. Turn to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. While you're turning there, the reason why David is going to be reflecting on these theological issues that I just brought up when we're talking about sovereignty and fallibility and compatibility, all these illability words, is because he likely wrote this piece as he was carrying the Ark of the Covenant uh, back to the place where they had prepared for it, the tabernacle. So he's, it's, you can envision like a procession with the people. This is David leading a procession where they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant back to the place that they had prepared for it. And David is concerned because instead of people being focused primarily on the Ark, on the ark of God and the procession and all the pomp and all the circumstance, what David wants to do is focus his people back to the God of the ark. Not just the ark of the God, not just the tabernacle, but the God that inhabits those things. He wanted to direct his people back to that. And what we'll see in David's struggle is the call to fellowship with God in these three decisive ways by confessing him, approaching him, and receiving him. So let me pick up with Psalm 24. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to go back and and sort of step through it. Psalm 24 says this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. For such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Verse 7. Lift up your gates, your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. So we're going to be looking at three parts to that as we break down this passage where David is describing the way in which we pursue and get close to God. And it's again, these three ways, by confessing him, by approaching him, and by receiving him. So we see right as we launch right into verse one here, we see David starts, he starts very interestingly by confessing God as creator king. God's made it all. He's done it all. He confesses his transcendence. Do you see the wording that's used in here? The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. He confesses his unlimited capacity to create everything from nothing and be the only one who has any exclusivity in that particular creative power, right? You guys tracking with me? So Liz, we just talked about Liz a minute ago. She's an amazing artist and nobody's going to debate that, but creating everything from nothing is not a talent that Klingler has in her tool belt. It just doesn't, it doesn't, I mean, I'm not putting her down. It's just the reality for all of us. And, and ain't none of us got what she has, right? God has complete creative control and power. So what David does right here as he launches into this song is he covers every creative option that God has dominion over. The earth and all that fills it, check, right? The world and all the people who dwell on it, check. Founder, general contractor, designer, check. 
Like he has all of that. That's all him. None of us have a piece or a place in the design or the construction or the creativity that goes into what is this earth and the people who dwell in this earth, which is us. Psalm 89, 11 says, the heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. So what we see with this and what we understand is that God is completely independent. He's completely independent. He needs nothing to sustain him, to power him, to provide him with knowledge, tools, materials, or spare parts when it comes to creating. He created everything from the power of his will and his word. And what this reminds us of is this unique kind of otherness that we get when we understand who God is, man. This God of ours is truly independent, whereas us, we're just truly dependent. God is truly independent. We are truly dependent on God and on the things that God makes for us so that we can live and function and ultimately worship him. So our tendency, our tendency is to shrink God. That's what we do as human beings who think we have creative power but lack creative power but want to assume creative power over our lives and over the destinies of our future. Our tendency when we do that is that we shrink God down to our size. We shrink him down to our level to make him comfortable for us, right? Because when we start meditating on a God with this kind of creative juice, it gets uncomfortable real fast because we don't, we don't have anything for that. We don't have anything for that. It's easier to think of him like a harmless old grandpa with a white beard, you know, doing some laps around the clouds, trying to get his 10,000 steps in on his, on his Fitbit. You know, I mean, that's, that's what makes us comfortable when we think of God. Somebody who's just a little distant, who's not so invested, and who just wants to look down and give us like a nice grandfatherly grin. But we get a different picture here when we consider what it is that God has created and made. And then the, the, the issue and the struggle with that is that the opposite things happens when we shrink God into a comfortable image of our choosing. Do you realize that's why we just sang those songs? Though you ruin me, still I will praise you. I mean, man, that, that didn't like, that didn't like put a lot of like comfort and like, you know, like warm apple cider feelings inside when we were just like singing that, right? That didn't feel like the beginning of fall when, you know, Melissa's baking some cookies and i am got the blanket around me and I'm reading a nice book. No, that doesn't do that. That doesn't do that for me. God creates a position in us that doesn't allow us to form him into what we want him to be. And what happens is when we try to make God or shrink God into a comfortable image of our choosing, we lose God. He's not God anymore. A God who isn't above all creation is a creation of man. He's not a creator God anymore. And the problem is, is we don't get closer to God when we turn him into something he's not. We don't get to do that. That's what we call idolatry, which is making something that isn't God into a God of our own choosing and our own liking. So what, what David is doing here right from the beginning of his song is he's painting a picture of a God who is worthy who's worthy to seek after. He's worthy to go after. He's worthy to value above all else. He's worthy to worship above all else. He's worthy to be in the presence of above all else. 
And one of the rubs we have as humans, as I laid out in the beginning, is just autonomous living. And just autonomy, autonomous living, the desire to create our own universe and then give God a place in our universe where he can best serve us, which, by the way, sounds like the most dysfunctional relationship like ever, right? Here's my universe, God. When, you know, I'm just going to invite you in when I want to invite you in, but just, you know, hold on, hold off until I let you know that it's okay. The problem with that line of thinking, which we tend to fall in by default, is that we don't have a universe, Ain't none of y'all have a universe. There's only one universe. And it happens to be God. It's like your kid building a house made of Legos and saying, hey, Pop, why don't you come in and start making a house here? Right? I made the house. I mean, what? It's right there. I mean, I used all the different colored Legos you bought me. Why won't you live there? I mean, you're going to smack this kid. Right? What kind of value do you place on God? Do you ascribe him his worth, like what David is doing here? He's confessing God's worth to God. Maybe God is micro in your eyes. Think about this. Consider this, all right? Maybe God is micro in your eyes because your mouth never confesses his macro-ness, his majesty. Do you ever tell God he's great? Do you ever tell God he's great? I'm not not talking about singing the chorus to how great is our God 73 times, right? And we don't even sing that song here. So that's not even going to help you. But do you regularly pause at the astonishing glow of his creation? Do you ever pause at like a sunset? We get some stunning sunsets in Ohio. I mean, I I don't know. I think think they're kind of awesome. But to pause at that... And praise God for his creativeness in creating the colors that surround that sunset. Because, you know, I'm not like a scientist, so I don't even know how that works. I just look at it and I go, it's it's beautiful. It's kind of like looking at the backdrop here. I don't know. I just know that it's beautiful and I want to praise the person who's responsible for it. Man, we have all of those things surrounding us where we have the opportunity to confess the glory and the majesty and the creativeness of our God. To say, God, I give you glory for the splendor that lies before me. Do you ever do that? Do you ever confess God's beauty and creativeness to him? Because one of the ways that we become more godly is by confessing God's godliness to him. Do you know that? That's one of the ways that we become more godly. It's not flattery. I mean, God doesn't need us telling him he's great. It's gratefulness. It's worship. It's awe. And what's interesting is that worship is what bridges the divide between God's sovereignty and our fallibility, our sinfulness. And what you find is that pursuing God and seeking his face, it's a struggle. It's a struggle, and that's what David is getting to here. This is hard. It's like wrestling. Man, it's not like rolling down a slide. It's not like sliding and sledding down a snowy hill. It's not something that's just effortless. It's not something that's breezy. It's a wrestling thing. David compares it with climbing a mountain there in verse 3. He says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He said, who shall stand in his holy place? So David asks an honest question after he establishes his magnitude and majesty of God. After confessing, he says, God, you're all this, but how do I get close to you and remain in your company? 
So David is already acknowledging that there's a problem here when we consider who God is. And he answers the question in verse 4. He says, he who has clean hands, he who has a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully, he will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So that is how David lays out for us that we have access to God. You know, one of the things um, about our friends from the United Kingdom is that I, I feel like they know how to kind of create a spectacle. They know how to do a little bit of, little bit of pageantry, right? You remember the kind of the craziness surrounding the, the royal wedding a few years ago, right? I mean, I had friends that were like waking up at 2 a.m., you know, to like turn on the TV and see if they could see the procession. You remember like the, just the thousands of people that were lining the streets just to get a glimpse of the royal family driving to church, you know, in their carriages because apparently it's still the 1800s in, in England. And, uh, but what, what was going on there was people wanted to get close to the prince and the princess, but the dilemma that they faced is that, man, they're not part of the royal family. They're not in the access. It's limited. They can only go so far. And so what David does here is he recognizes that struggle for us. Who can ascend the hill? Who can stand in the holy temple? The struggle we face in approaching God. How do we get access into the presence of someone who spoke light into existence. How is it possible for us? Maybe some of you feel this way. How do I get closer to God? I feel like he's far away. I feel like I'm too insignificant for him to even pay attention. And our struggle to ascend to God qualifies us. That's what David is asking here. What qualifies us? David says it's actually the cleansing power of God's righteousness that cleanses our hands, that purifies our hearts, that turns us from pursuing idols. And the person who pursues this righteousness of God will receive the righteousness of Christ that is required to be near to God when they seek him. So that is how David approaches God, he stands before him and he admits the struggle. I mean, some of you guys just need to admit the struggle. Some of you guys just need to be honest with God and say, I don't know how to do this. Some of you guys just need to talk to each other and say, pray for me. I don't know how to do this. Help me. It's a struggle to pursue the righteousness of God. But that's how we approach God. We can only approach him by receiving his righteousness, which qualifies us then to stand before him and to ascend that hill and to seek his face. I mean, seeking God is wrestling with God. I'm a wrestler. You guys should know that. Not, not literally. I mean, Dave Durland's going to remind me, brother, you're not a wrestler. I have like four sons. They've all won national championships. They're wrestlers. Brother, you are not a wrestler. I don't mean literally a wrestler, but I wrestle with God. I wrestle with God. Verse 7 calls to remembrance the story of Jacob and how he wrestled with God one night. I mean, this is a brother that, that, that was, was getting ready to face his brother Esau, who he stole all the family fortune from. And years and years later, Esau finds him, and they have the big showdown, and Jacob is just a little on the scared side. So what happens is the Lord meets him one night, the night before he's going to meet his brother, and just wrestles with, you know, all MMA style, man. He just wrestles with him all the way through the night in Genesis uh, 32. 
He's facing his brother Esau. It's not looking good. And if you know anything about Jacob's life, this was a dude that just stubbornly pushed forward with his plan, his agenda, and the Lord was breaking him down. The Lord broke this brother down. He was seeking to control his life. Does that sound familiar? I don't know. Last time I checked, I'd like a little control over my life. I'd like a little control over my destiny. I'd like a little control over my emotions and my feelings that kind of spiral. I'd appreciate that. I'd like a little control. Jacob had been trying to wrestle control from God his entire life. And finally, he has this UFC showdown with God, and God breaks him down. God eventually dislocates his hip. But Jacob, man, the dude is just so stubborn. He just refuses to stop until he receives a blessing from God. And what God revealed to Jacob was that the greatest blessing he can receive from God is the righteousness that comes from the salvation of God. I mean, does that make some of you yawn when I say that? Have you heard that so many times in church that when you hear righteousness and salvation of God, you just go, oh my gosh, man, I just want some cash. How about cash? How about my mortgage paid off? How about a job where I don't have to worry about if it's still going to be there in a week? How about one week where I'm not going to be fighting with my brother or my sister? How about a life where I don't have to show up at family events anymore because those things go south like every single time? How about that? Like, now you're talking. Now I'm interested. Now you've got my, my interest. But do you see the kind of predicament that we're in when we're wrestling with God? Do you see the predicament that we're in? Because when we're wrestling with God, we're wrestling for control from him. And he's trying to establish the truth and the reality in our lives that his control and his rule over our lives is what's going to give us our greatest satisfaction, our greatest joy. doesn't mean we're not going to struggle. It doesn't mean we're not going to fight. It also doesn't mean that we're not going to continue to wrestle. But he's trying to show us himself. He's trying to show us the best way. And yet we see here as David approaches God, as he acknowledged this wrestling, he, he doesn't despair. His brother's not in despair. He, he knows what qualifies him and his people to approach God and be acceptable in his sight. David prayed in Psalm 19. He said, listen, he said, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So what, what kind of words, what kind of meditations are acceptable because that's what we're talking about right now. What's acceptable as we approach the Lord? Well, only, only ones that have been washed clean by the blessing of God's righteousness through His Son. There's just not a lot, of, a lot of options there. I mean, God is not a smorgasbord, right? He doesn't give us options. He gives us the option. He gives us Christ. I mean, you know, no matter how many times... You know, I punch in the wrong login word to Yahoo. I mean, man, my, my, it doesn't come up for me. You know, when I type in one, two, three, four, there's my password. So you guys want to log into my Yahoo. When I type in one, two, three, four, like I can type that in 296,000 times and my page is never going to come up because in actuality, my password is one, two, three, five, because somebody told me I shouldn't do one, two, three, four. So that's the dilemma I find myself in is no matter how many times I do that, it doesn't change. And if we approach God with any of our own stuff, 
And we repeatedly do that. We repeatedly go down that path. It doesn't change our life and our heart because we're not depending on the righteousness of Christ to qualify us to go before Him and to wash our hands, to cleanse us, to pull us from our idols that we slip so easily into. So David confesses God. He approaches the throne of grace. He receives the righteousness of God that comes through Christ. He beholds the face of the one who comes in glory as you get to those verses 7 through 9. David's heart becomes open to receive the presence of God, his counsel, his strength, his glory to illuminate and fill all the autonomous voids that no doubt existed in David's life. This is not a brother that's any different than we are. You know, I'm always fascinated by how easily we elevate people in in our society, in in our culture, in Ashland. Um, It's always fascinating to me. We elevate people, we put places, we put events, man, we, we kind of pinnacle things really easily. And I, I mean, you know, so for instance, I, I mean, look, you guys, just so you know, and so we're all clear here, like I'm all for the calves taking it all the way and crushing Golden State, all right? Like I'm all for that. I, I, hope, my, I hope my friends in California aren't hearing me say that right now because I, there's something at stake with that, all right? But let me just say with you, because I'm an Ohioan now, you know, go calves. Okay, good. We're, we're established with that. But um, it's a basketball game. I, I mean, it's, it's literally a, a, a basketball game. I was talking to Danny Krispinski a couple days ago, and he made the comment to me. He goes, I was asking him about the game, seeing if he's all pumped. And he goes, yeah, he goes, but it's, you know, it's, it's LeBron. I mean, like what? And I'm like looking around going, like, is somebody going like, to dive on this brother and beat him up? Because that's usually the things I say. You know, and Danny goes, it's, it's LeBron James. It's a, it's, a, it's a basketball game. He goes, what can LeBron do for me? And I'm, I'm like, keep talking, preaching. I'm grabbing my pen and I'm taking notes right now. Um, and so what happens is, and what all of you guys are doing right now is you're receiving LeBron in, into your living rooms. Good. But, but the only thing he, he does for you is, is entertainment. The only thing he does for you is like three-pointers and nailing free throws. That's what LeBron provides for you. But yet we, we've elevated him to king of glory status in our state and in our town, haven't we? I mean, if I I have the king of glory, which is what verses 7 through 10 is talking about here, if I have the king of glory ruling in my life, what it means now is I can welcome him. Because if I've confessed him, if I've approached him, and he has cleansed me of my unrighteousness, and now I have the righteous standing before him, it means I can welcome him. It means now I can receive him. I can elevate him into every part of it. It means my brushes with autonomous living will lessen because the joy of Christ and his righteousness ruling my life far outweighs just these pitiful, just cardboard cutout designs that I, that I try to construct for it. So, so what that means for me and what that means for you if you are a brother or sister in Christ is that, is that it means I, I invite the Lord to rule over everything. So when you read passages like this in verse 7, lift up your head, O gates, be lifted up that the king of glory may come in. So what David, is, what David is trying to picture here is getting to that throne room of grace when the ark has been placed and he is welcoming the Lord into the presence of the people. That's what he's talking about. He confessed who God was. He approached him. They're cleansed of their unrighteousness. Now they can welcome him in. So I can invite the Lord to rule over everything in my life. 
And you know what? Yeah, there's risk. There's risk in that. But, but the reward, right? We always talk about risk reward. Give me a risk reward. You know, lay that out for me, Ronnie. Well, the reward is already assured. If you risk everything for autonomous living, you have no guarantee of reward because the rulers of your life that come with autonomy will lack stability. You guys tracking with me on that? Autonomy is instability. But when you receive the king of glory in your life, the risk will be light and momentary suffering like Paul laid out because that is what gets promised to the Christian, but not instability. Not instability. You can endure suffering when you know there's a person behind it who already suffered for you to secure your reward. Jacob sought God's face. He wrestled. And the problem might be, all right, the problem might be that you don't wrestle, that you're not wrestling at all. Dude, seek God's face. Wrestle and box it out like a heavyweight. Get in there. Lay it out. Quit lying to God when you pray. What do you think? You're like pulling one over on him? Quit treating God like it's a dysfunctional relationship because it means you've been thinking of God all wrong. And don't assume that you're thinking rightly about God because you've come to this place. What David did was he redirected his view of God so that he viewed himself and his place before God truthfully. So that when you come to verse 9 where it says, Lift up your head, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. What it shows us is that we can welcome Jesus, the king of glory, to rule in all of our lives. Or do you keep some things to yourself? Do you do that? Do you have stuff in your life that you, like to, that you sort of like to hoard and keep to yourself? You know, I'll give you Sunday, I'll I'll give you my tithe, shoot, I even give you a CG middle of the week, but this over here, this thing right here, this one is mine. This time during the week, that's me time. I deserve that. I earned it. It's mine. The problem is that self-rule, which is what that is, which is what I'm describing, is autonomy. And autonomy leads to idolatry. I mean, Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve wanted their own rule. Why did they want their own rule? They were already in Eden. They already had it all. They already had all that external stuff. Why did they want their own rule? The bottom line is that they wanted God to have a selective place in their life because they thought their selections were better. That's what it was. God, I want what's mine. And we have God so clearly in Scripture saying, the problem with that is that the earth and everything in it and the fullness thereof, I created and it's mine. And I give it to you, I bless you with it, but it actually is mine so that, the purpose of it is so that you'll end up worshiping me through it. You know what it's kind of like as we close? We think of this idea of keeping things to ourselves, of not letting God rule over every aspect of our life. And it's kind of like being, it's kind of like being invited to the White House, right? 
and you get this ornate letter. It says you are cordially invited to come stay for three months during the summer at the White House. All expenses paid. Just pull up your really horrible car. They'll let you in the gates. They know who you are. They're going to let you in, man, and you're just going to be living like a king from June through September. And as soon as you get there, you like pull off your backpack and you set up a tent and hang out in a tent the whole time. That's the equivalent of what we're talking about when we talk about keeping things from God. You know, I've been invited to the White House. I've been given everything. I've been given royal treatment. But really what I want to do is just set up a tent and hang out in my little space here. I'll come out when it's time for dinner and drinks, but I just want to keep to myself in between meal times. Do you see the absurdity of that? Do you see what's surrounding you? Do you see where you are? Do you see how David was trying to communicate this? That everything that God has given us, that we can welcome him into is for our good and ultimately his glory, which is always for our good. Who are we to be selective with God? Who are we to be selective with God? What we need to do is stop letting other rulers invade and set up kingdoms in our life because we are in a kingdom with one sovereign ruler who graciously has extended his righteousness to cover us and to bless us. So here's how I leave us today because I have things in my life that I, I want to keep securely mine except that, that phrase right there is, is absolutely an, an untrue statement because nothing is securely mine but the righteousness that I haven't earned from Christ that God has graciously given to me in Christ. That's the only secure thing in my life. So the encouragement for us is seek Jesus. The encouragement for us is we read this psalm and we see the place in the position that God has put David in, which was to receive everything that God had for him and everything that God was going to have for mankind thousands of years later when he delivered Christ to be crucified. What David understands is I need to seek the God who is responsible for my righteousness and my joy. I need to pray that God rules every part of my life, not just the parts that are comfortable. I need to pray against autonomy and wanting to live for my own goodwill and my own pleasure. I need to seek Jesus. I need to receive Jesus. I need to welcome him to rule into every corner of my life because his is a gracious rule. His is a merciful rule. His is a rule without end that leads to a glorious eternity with him. Why would I not want him to have that over every square inch of my life? You guys hear me? Let's pray for that. Lord, we are so often drawn to wanting the pieces of our life that we want, that are most comfortable to us, that seem to be the most desirous to us. And yet we see here just a completely different picture of the kind of place that you desire in our lives. So Lord, we pray that we would do as David did that we would meditate deeply on this truth, 
that we could, would confess who you are, creator God over all things, that we would approach you, that we would wrestle with you, that we would lay things before you that are hard and confusing and don't make sense, and we would seek you even in those things. Lord, that we would experience that daily cleansing from unrighteousness. And Lord, I pray that we would finally welcome you into every aspect of our lives, that you would be the ruler over every square inch of it, that we wouldn't try so hard in our wrestling to be wrestling control of things that we want to keep separate from you. Lord, forgive us for that. Lord, forgive us for the the error of that for the deceptiveness of that, thinking that if I just have my own things and I give you some things, that's going to make my life complete. So Lord, we pray for fruit in this area. We pray that we can rest in the righteousness that we have through Christ while wrestling to approach you in our fallibility, but trusting in your goodness. Lord, we want to push away from autonomous living this summer. We want to enjoy the blessings that you've given us, the vacations, the time away, the time off. We thank you for those things, and we pray that we would enjoy those things in their proper place, not by ignoring you, not by taking what we believe is ours, but by giving everything to you and offering everything to you with the acknowledgement that it's already yours, and you've just been so good and gracious to extend it to us, to steward it well. So Lord, in all this, we praise you, we glorify you, we rejoice in you. And we pray that you would continue to transform us in these ways. And we pray all these things in God's people said. Amen. Let's stand and sing.